Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. On a wall outside the reading room of the Museo Correr in Venice hangs a map of the world. It is not just any map. The oceans are painted cerulean blue, and on their waves travel ships of every nation. On land, the constructions of every culture are shown. Cities and towns, castles and arches, mosques and cathedrals, tombs and towers, but also a delicate portrayal of the Garden of Eden set within a wider cosmos. It is, moreover, a map filled with words, the words written in Veneziano, the Italian dialect of Venice, in beautiful, multicolored penmanship. The map was created in 1459 by a Venetian monk who, in doing so, produced the most advanced description of the world yet seen in Europe or, perhaps, anywhere else. It was, argues my guest Meredith Small, a key moment when maps and cartography became a sort of proto-science, something beginning to be what we understand it today rather than as, previously, an expression of culture on religious concepts, which is now a perspective very foreign to us. Meredith Small is a professor of anthropology at Cornell University. She has previously written Inventing the World, Venice, and the Transformation of Western Civilization. And her latest book is Here Begins the Dark Sea, Venice, a Medieval Monk, and the Creation of the Most Accurate Map of the World, which is the subject of our conversation today. Meredith Small, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's great to be here. We've been uh, we've been trying to do this for some time, so it's 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 finally good to to do this. And I apologize for all the endless uh, runarounds in my schedule. But let's describe first. Let's begin with the taste of when you first were confronted by this map, uh, and when it hit you over the head. It sounds like like a, a couple of axe handles coming in simultaneously. That's a good way to describe it. I had been just on a whim. I decided to learn Italian. And just because Americans my age often never learned another language, and I thought, well, I'll do this as a hobby. So I began with the usual you know, self-teaching guides and whatever, and then uh, my daughter was quite young then, but then as she started to go on school trips, I decided, well, I'll go to Italy and, and for a week or two weeks and take a class at a language school. So I started going to Venice because we had lived there twice before for a month each, and really, it was just, oh, that's a nice place, I'll go there. So uh, since I was in Venice for, could be even as much as a month, I would naturally go to all the museums. And so I went to the Corre, which is one of the civic museums of Venice, and it's the history of Venice in that museum. And so you walk through various rooms and see armor and architectural designs, etc. And then at the end, you come to the Sansovino reading room, which is this beautiful room. And I was walking through that. They often put exhibits in there. And then I was looking for a staircase to go down into the Marciana Library, which is connected to the Corre. And they are both on Piazza San Marco. In case you're going to Venice, I recommend them both. But anyway, I passed out of the Sansovino reading room and was just moving a little bit further. And to my right, there was an alcove and there was this map. And I had no idea what it was. And at the time I knew nothing about world maps, 
but it is so striking. First of all, it's seven feet in diameter, so it is gigantic. And it has two gold frames, one a round one that contains the world, and then a square one around the outside, which pieces of his cosmos, his idea of how he thought the cosmos was in the corners. But again, I knew nothing, and I didn't even know what it was, and I saw a little sign that said Frau Maurer's map, 1459, and I noted all the writing, but of course I couldn't read it because I don't speak Veneziano, let alone old Veneziano. And that must have been maybe in 2017, and it just stuck with me. And people have asked me, well, what, what hit you about it at first? And it was the beauty. It is incredibly beautiful. And now it's gone through a renovation that took a year or two, and it's rehung. And they have actually, you walk the same way, and now there's a whole uh, uh, exhibit about maps. And it is the end. And it's now in a beautiful case, and it's got official light that goes off and on, and you know, a museum guide sitting there, and a bench in front of it. And now I go to visit it every time I go to Venice. And it's, it's a thrill to see that now it's become one of the main exhibits after all these hundreds of years. It's always one of the uh, <clears throat> excuse me problems of talking about art history or hist uh, art artwork on a podcast. Uh, but it's also a problem when you write a book about it. Either you have a lovely plate of it. And yet, of course, a plate cannot convey, a book cannot convey the impact of it. Um, this is why you still have to teach art history with like slide, old-fashioned slide projectors in a big dark classroom, just to give a taste of the, you know, size and scope of something. Um, it, so it's all it's all like speaking without with using only half of the vocabulary or less to just put this picture as nice as it is. This plate in the book. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and in, in that in that insert, which is 16 pages, I was uh, given you know the task of choosing the pictures, and so there's one a big one, and then there are, the next page has three close-ups because mm -hmm. with the big one reduced to a small picture, you really don't see the detail. But with the close-ups, you begin to see the things like all the different kinds of boats bobbing around in the water. And uh, one of my favorite things is there's a ladder bobbing around in the water in one place. And, and, and it's, that's exactly true. To see it in person, as in any great artwork, is completely different. And I, I could also mention that uh, the Science Museum in Florence has made a fabulous interactive online thing that people can go to just without seeing the map. And that way you can kind of play with your vis visualization of the map and it has lots of information. They have that set up as well uh, in the room next to the map. So you can, even though you can walk up close to it, you can also do this interactive thing. We'll link to that in the show notes. Okay. So let's, uh, were, were you interested, as an anthropologist, were you interested in maps or human mapping functions prior Ab to seeing absolutely this? Absolutely not. Uh, my training <laughs> is in primate behavior. I used to watch macaque monkeys. I watched four different species around the world. 
and I'm what's called a biological anthropologist, and we usually do human fossil record, human variation, and primate behavior. This was such an incredible change for me. I've written lots of books in anthropology. Um, some of your listeners may have heard of Our Babies Ourselves about parenting across cultures. And uh, this really grew out of learning Italian, and then at the same time, for years, even while uh, I was teaching, uh, heavily teaching at Cornell, I was also writing for the popular audience for Discover and Natural History, and um, I was a commentator on All Things Considered. And I can only say I know a good story when I see one. It's, it's, so even though I'm an anthropologist and your basic academic, I also have training and experience as a journalist and a science journalist, and I just knew that this was an incredible thing. And also, I had had a desire to do what I call a Tracy Kidder kind of book, where you write about one thing, be it a house or a school or whatever. And I thought, this was my chance. And then mm -hmm. after writing Inventing the World, we had COVID. And I thought, this is the perfect opportunity for me to stuck in my apartment in Philadelphia for three years to take on an entirely different subject. And I have to say, that's what I love, is learning something new. That's what keeps me going. So everything you read in this book, I learned by using the online libraries of the University of Pennsylvania and Cornell. One thing that uh, immediately hit home to me was the way that humans have and have not used maps. So I'm wondering, um, do your the macaque monkeys do they have a spatial relationship? Uh, do, are, uh, I mean they do. I mean so absolutely. we all all primates have some kind of way of finding. I mean not just primates, pigeons, all sorts of animals, even really generally really stupid ones like my dog that's lying <laughs> here. She seems to have a really amazing smell memory on a map. Right. Uh, and so I, I've been, after reading your book, I was watching her like finding where she killed a bunny rabbit two years ago, but going to the same place on the family farm, you know, checking all the groundhog holes, which she might not have seen for a month, but she knows where they all are. So there's a map in her head linked to smells and things and, and realizing that this is, this is something deep in our brainstem. Absolutely, this, That's to do this that. sort of uh, spatial, be under understanding space. When you think about another example, would be squirrels. They're planting nuts, and then in the spring, they know exactly where to find them. And so, in the in the first chapter of the book, I write about humans and the development of map, map making. And the first thing, really, to say is that humans were making maps before there was written language. So maps were there first, and they, the oldest maps are on clay. Sometimes they're scratched onto stone, and um, that it, it's part of our ability to do symbolically, to represent one thing somewhere else. And even these, these very ancient maps, you can figure out these are streets, these are houses. Or, or this is the Babylonian map of the world, the first map of the world. You can tell that the center is Babylon, and then maybe these other parts are oceans. So very early on, maps of the world weren't used to get from point A to point B. They were really an expression of something, we could call it artistic, 
uh, of, of a concept of what the world is. And that's one reason I find them fascinating, rather than, say, a Google map of how to get to New York. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like the, a different thing. Yeah. And they are, um, they're immediately, they're taking us to a level of abstraction, which is, uh, would seem to be a kind of difficult leap to make I, when, when I think about it. And we have to imagine what it looks like from above, uh, what it looks like from different perspectives, and it requires us to take what's real and put it onto a different, as you say, into a different material. There's several steps that we have to go through to do that. Right, and it's part of symbolic think thinking, and we know that babies and children do this very early, that they're able to abstract like that. So we, as an anthropologist, I would, I would ask the question, well, is this, it, it, was this an evolutionary advantage for humans? that we were able to, for symbolic thinking, but also be able to represent things on the ground, on a piece of clay. I would suggest or hypothesize absolutely to be able to do this, to communicate with others and to express uh, what your city looks like or what land belongs to you. Or I think it's part of human nature now and it's something that has evolved with our, our ability our cognitive ability to for abstract thinking and symbolism, to understand mm -hmm. symbolism, that one thing represents something else. Mm -hmm. It's as important as writing in that way. Absolutely, maybe even more important. Uh, there was one fact I came around, they were testing kids who had never seen, uh, they, they had never seen their village from above, like from a, a hill or something, like it was, wasn't possible, but when they presented these kids with a map of their village, they knew it was their village. Hmm. So they, they could already, in their minds, when they saw this picture, know that that was a linear expression of their 3D village. So it is something very innate in humans. So we should, we're talking about this this map made by this fellow, Fra Mauro, or Brother Mauro. He's a monk. And um, what do we know about him? Just to, people are probably impatient to get to the, the meat of this. So who you know, was he? We know pretty much nothing about him, <laughs> except because all his notes are gone. And we only know that he was a, what they call a lay monk, meaning he didn't uh, complete all his vows but we don't know why. Um, and this was actually very common during that time. And he belonged to the Camaldolese order of, of monks. And they had a monastery on an island for, for listeners who have been to Venice. I think we call we tend to call Venice the central group of islands, uh, little islets that are connected. But if you stand on the north shore of that, on the street called Fundamenta Nova, you you see another island and you see a brick wall and cypresses coming up behind it. It's quite beautiful. It's called San Michele. And at this point, it's the cemetery island of Venice. So if you die in Venice, you're brought there, you're buried for 12 years, and then you're dug up and your bones are taken to an ossuary island, unless you're very wealthy and then you get to stay there. Um, but it was originally two islands, and then when Napoleon came and he, uh, did, uh, you know, ended the monastery, 
he had them join those two islands so they could bury people. He didn't like that people were buried in the city of Venice underneath the pavements that everybody walks over. So now it's the cemetery island. And when you go to visit, and I do recommend it, it's quite, it's quite beautiful. But still, the original monastery that Fra Mauro lived in is there, the original cloister. And you see a picture, some pictures of it uh, in my book. And so we have that, but the church has been rebuilt, the towers have been rebuilt, etc. But the point is that he was not a cloistered monk. He was, uh, he, we know he had the job of uh, picking up rents in the city for the buildings that the monastery owned. So we know he went to central Venice. How did he get there? Did he row himself or did somebody else row him? There were at that time not all the bridges there are. Those came with Napoleon. So we can imagine at least that he rode himself to Venice. It probably took him 10 minutes. And then rode around Venice because he would need, either he had to have his uh, the paints and you know the vellum for this and the wood. Either they were brought to him or he went and picked them out because Venice was the first place that ever had an art store art supply store, so he might have gone there or uh, to a pharmacy and bought the colors. But he was interacting with people more than you might expect. He was also hired by the uh, Ministry of, of, of Water to help figure out how to reroute a river coming into the lagoon. We know this from documentation, but we don't have his words on it because, again, they were lost. And this they think that he died in 1459 on the back of the map it says 1460 and that's when it was hung in the monastery and that's that's all we know are from records from the monastery about the money spent on the map who was paid this much and little bits about how who worked on it so a lot of that, it, I go through that in the book, and I warn the reader that I'm, I'm speculating, but it's not groundless speculation. It's all about the history. So the map was for the monastery. It wasn't for the Doge's palace. It wasn't for the Council of Ten, the political rulers of no, the it, it was, Republic. No, it was for the government. It was for, it was the, for government. the government. It was for the government. Okay. Uh, if people read about this map, like the Wikipedia page and stuff, it will say that the first the map we see now was the one for the King of Portugal. That turns out not to be true. That is the original map. And a copy was made for Alfonso V of Portugal. It was sent to him. We have records of how much money was paid for this, but it's now destroyed. There was another copy made for the Medici of Florence because once it got out, there was this new beautiful world map. You know, aristocrats wanted it. And that map is also gone. So all that's left is this one and then a photo that was taken of it much, much later. There's another copy that an artist in England made, and it's in the British Museum. But it's not the original. It's not the same size. Um, but that's all we have. So if we um, we don't know much about Fra Mauro, we do know a lot about Venice in the 1450s because, thank God for historians, the Venetians were magnificent record takers. Um, and this the 1450s is sort of this, is um, Venice has had 
had at least three comebacks or three renaissances. You know, uh, they kind of, in the early Middle Ages, in the high Middle Ages, and this is their kind of third big moment uh, where um, they're moving on. I think this is the... I, my Venetian political history is a little rusty, but I believe they're starting to acquire land on terra firma. They're becoming a player, a more of a player in the land game in 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 the uh, in the Italian peninsula. At the same time, 1459, 1460, highly significant since in 1453 Constantinople has fallen to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so there's a lot going on around around Fra Mauro, which might suggest why they wanted this map. And also that with all that going on it meant that Venice, it, geographically, was in the center of all those uh, machinations. And it, people wonder, where did he get his information? How, how did he know what to draw? And it seems to be mostly by word of mouth that sailors came and he says, people told me, people told me, several people told me this. And when he says people, he's meaning navigators, sailors. And, and because Venice had this history of everybody coming and going, he was gathering information. He also had on his team Andrea Bianco, who was a Venetian navigator who had been to the North Sea and had drawn his own world map. So he was supported by, uh, as a cartographer. Um, and that's sort of all we know. I mean, there was no printing press yet in Venice. That came very quickly after, but did he know of other maps? Did he know of Portuguese? Of course he did, because we have to think of Venice at that time almost as if it was Paris or London. Yes, it was very because it's richer. Richer, cosmopolitan, and More international. More cosmopolitan. Everyone goes there. Everyone. Uh, everyone comes from there. Yeah. Uh, we've friend of the podcast, Ioana Yordano, who's on to talk about Venice's Secret Service. Oh, yeah. It's a great um, book. This, this is a great book. And, it, and as she says, every Venetian sailor is basically a spy in the pay of the Council of Ten. Uh, wherever they go, they, they if they're literate, they file a report. If they're illiterate, someone takes down a report. Um, they're always collecting information. And reading your book, I'm you know convinced that Fra Mauro had some sort of access to these geographical reports. So in, in a way, it's a project like the uh, Defense Geographical, I have to look this up, but there's a ge the de Defense Mapping Service, as it used to be. You know, this is right. this is this is sort of uh, this is where making a really big detailed map is also sort of an instrument of intelligence policy and a matter of state. Yeah, and also a commercial a commercial act because which is for, which for the Venetians is inseparable. Inseparable, and uh, the scholars who have uh, uh, published on this map in in, in academic journals and everything um, say that if you look at the map from Mauro. It, one of his big purposes is to show that the various trade routes that Venetians and others were using, that they could be connected to each other. <laughs> and so he was, and, and because he, there's so much description in here on goods and where to find them, mostly that he got from Marco Polo, uh, it, it really is in that tradition of Venetian trade. You can't get away from it. You know, he was part of that. It was in his, his body and his soul to take that uh, point of view. Yes. Uh, what were, in the in the introduction I alluded to the fact that the Wayne's maps were used uh, previous to Fra Varro is a perspective that 
from Mara's contemporaries were just taken for granted. Um, um, of the, ma the perspective of the Mapa Mundi, of the T and O map. And we'll explain what those are in just a sec. So we're going to have to explain them and the sort of cultural and religious power that they exerted upon the viewer in order to explain the break then that Fra Mauro makes from them, or the transition, we should say. Well, wor world maps were never used for navigation. They were always, a be the best word you can use is propaganda. They were always used for a reason, either to uh, a, a religious reason or to put your city at the center of the world. And many people have called them the encyclopedias of their day. They were never intended to be rolled up and taken on a boat. They always were intended to be hung up. And they became about, you know, by the time of Frau Mauro, they became something precious that you had in your house, if you had one, that showed that you were an intelligent and sophisticated person. So they really were always works of art and maybe with a little, you know, propaganda. It, certainly the religious maps were propaganda in that sense. Well, or also, I, I think there's a recent book, I'll link to it in the notes, that uh, argues that some of the, the TNO maps, which are what they say, a big round depiction of the globe and a, a singular unitary northern continent, two smaller ones beneath, the sea is connected like a T, and at the center is Jerusalem. And many of them are pilgrim itineraries. Uh, there is a there is a devotional practice, perhaps even by looking, walk, you could read and walk the map, uh, in a in a as a pilgrim would go to Jerusalem. Only you can't, but you can go to. This might be why they're at Hereford Cathedral, because you can go there and you can walk the map to Jerusalem. So there's that. There's there's probably a religious, maybe perhaps a devotional practice to it. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point, a really good point. Then, then it makes the map, the world map, let's say the Hereford map, is part of a ritual in a sense. Yes. You go there and you can feel like you did that, that walk and you've made a connection and you've made a spiritual journey even though you haven't gone You're anywhere. You're stuck in Herefordshire. Yeah, right, right. Taking care of the pigs, yeah. Yep. So that's that's one. But there's also there's some other examples. You talk about Arab precedents that he certainly would have known about since the Venetians basically made a lot of money from trading with Alexandria, uh, which and, and and the East. Yeah. And he he has Arab boats in in the map itself. So he was he, clearly he knew about them. Did he see them? But of course, the um, Arabic maps are they were really designed as objects of beauty more than anything. And so when people look at them and say, well, why didn't they make the land look more like what land looks like? That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was beauty and decoration. And that's why I include several of them in, in, the, uh, in, in the book, because they really are magnificent, these maps. Mm -hmm. And um, again, they were about trade as well, but more a piece of art. And we just have to assume that he knew about them if he saw them. For all we know, an Arab sailor came to visit him and, and drew one of these maps for him. You know, like he doesn't know it, but there it is. Uh, because Frau Marl only left Venice, 
I think, once when he went to Istria, and that was it. So he never went on any of these trade routes. He never saw any of it. But there are, there are lines where, uh, and this is all on the map, where he's explaining everything he's done. And one of them is about these Ethiopian clerics who had come to Europe for a conference in Florence. And he, he talks about the people from that area told me that and fills it in. And that, that's his favorite phrase. People told me, someone told me. Yeah. And so he's continually getting information from people who've been, and I love that it's a footnoted map in a sense, this yes. you know, personal conversation with, and uh, he, uh, but at the same time, it is a work of art. And you have a, a highlight, you, you discuss the waves. You know, I've seen depictions of this map for decades, and I don't think I've ever seen a detail of it. And it's exquisite. Uh, the, 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 the way that he shows the undulations of the waves on the ocean, these, this blue, and then he mixes in white. And you can almost, I, I, I want to touch it and, uh, and feel it, because I'm sure that there must be some sort of um, topography, of the, even of the water, Absolutely. that you can feel as you, as you look at the map. So the wa this the is yeah, the waves are my favorite part. And yeah. I speculate in the book that maybe he or somebody invented some kind of tool, like a yeah. fork, or used a fork, because there are multiple lines that are going. And, and the map is in, uh, the, the, the paint is ink, um, is the, that's what they think now, that it's ink. And really? so, but, you know, we don't really know. Um, and, and so those waves that are drawn, and one of the really fun things is of all the 3,000 inscriptions that are across, across it, which were probably written by calligraphers mm -hmm. uh, uh, with his direction, is that some of them are actually pasted over other ones, like a post-it, like you, you've drawn something and you put a post-it on it because the nine years it took him to make this map, he changed his mind about things. And so some of those are glued, rewritten and glued on top. Uh, we, and we should emphasize the calligraphy because it, as you say, there are 3,000 inscriptions looking at sort of the little insets you have in figures two and four. It's a very wordy map. Very uh, wordy. I, I think I say something in the book in the book about it. It is talking to you. It, this mm -hmm. map is trying to have a conversation with you, and that's something that really stands out about the Frau Morrow map. Other maps have some explanation, but this one, the whole point seems to be explanation. And he's often, uh, and I appreciated that as an academic, that he was basically referencing himself saying, I got this from here, I got this from there. And in his cosmology, he follows Ptolemy. On the map, he does not. And he actually bashes Ptolemy here and there and disagrees with him. And so you can tell this was quite a scholarly thinking person who was trying to make geographic uh, decisions to be make the most accurate map in the world at the time. And he has, as it were, teachings that are encoded or expressed, you know, in the map. And we'll get to those in a second. Back to how he did this. So it's ink. It's ink on canvas or? No, vellum. Uh, 
vellum. Okay, vellum. And then that so is the that, vellum was the vellum was plastered or glued to a glued. board or how was yeah yeah it, there's a, there's a video if readers or listeners want to look it up if you look up Frau Mauro's map Australia there are YouTube videos uh, the only time it ever left Venice it went to the National Library of Australia in Canberra and there are two videos and the reason I really like these videos because they are packing it, they're moving it, they're setting it up, and you get a really good sense of how gigantic it is and also how it's made. That the circular map fits into a circular frame, there's a metal pole that then fits into another frame. And you, you see as the workers for the library are putting it back together and sticking it back up. So I really mm. recommend those videos. And we also imagine you've, you've suggested that he's got other calligra calligraphers working for him at his direction. So it's probably, this is a, this is a team research project. He is wow. the chief investigator. His name comes first in the journal article. But there's a, he's got a bunch of postdocs and graduate students working in his yeah. lab. Well, San Michele, the monastery at San Michele, had a uh, scriptorium. They were teaching young boys how, how to be calligraphers. And so it's a pretty easy leap. Uh, to mm -hmm. do that. And the other thing is that's so odd about this map is that the inscriptions are in Veneziano rather than Latin. And when he made the one, when they made the copy for Florence, they were translated in the, into uh, to Latin. But the reason he did that, historians think, is because the Camaldolese order was very much about uh, their monks writing in the language of wherever they lived because they wanted everyone to be able to read it. And, mm -hmm. and so that may not have been his decision. It may have been the decision of the monastery. This is going to be in Veneziano. And just to reiterate, where would this have hung? Where did this hang originally? It hung originally at the monastery for 150 years. Okay. And it was only when Napoleon came along and deconsecrated the monastery, and then very smartly, uh, some people in, in Venice asked, got permission to take all everything from the incredible library they had there, and the map was part of that. And it moved, I think, first to the Palazzo Ducale, and then eventually to the library, where it's been ever since. So do we have any sense uh, in the 150 years of viewer response of people coming to the monastery to see the map? Was it on the tour, uh, the, a tour of other for Italian nobles visiting Venice? Did they want to go and see the map? I mean, do we have any idea? Of we that? don't have any idea at all. And it, it feels like it was just hanging there by itself and every once in a while, because it was a closed cabinet that, that it was in. And... Uh, you know, what was going on there politically? Were they trying to hide it all of a sudden? Did they think it was not so great? Or was it just, oh, that's nice, let's hang it up there, and then every once in a while someone would come through? We, I really don't know the answer to that. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I, I had, but was turning this around in my head because of the Veneziano, um, and if it's supposed to be a teaching, if it's supposed to be a teaching map for the Republic, Okay, then Veneziano. But then you put it in a closed cabinet in a monastery. That 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 doesn't that rules that out. So I know it's, it's it's part of the mystery of this map, and because we have no documentation of what happened, that that that's you know there are these blanks in between where all you can do is speculate. So, 
what are some of his arguments about geography to those who look at the map? Well, make, make him make him a, a pioneer. Yeah. Well, first of all, the map is upside down. When you when you go and you look at it, south is. No wonder why the Australians like it. <laughs> right. I actually went to see it with an Australian friend, uh, and I and I said to him, "I'd like a map of the world with Australia in the center rather than North America." And he just went, "Uh huh." You know, like that's normal. You didn't have Australia in the middle. Yeah. Um, uh, I forget what you asked me. Uh, so, what what are some of his teachings about geography? I mean, what, like okay. let's 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 go through some of his teachings and sort of go all the way to the cosmos because I love his sort of he is a very Thomas but also Dante Alighieri friend of the podcast uh, view of, of of where he puts the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Um, yeah. So first of all, the map is upside down, and as south is north, and uh, people who've written about the map. Uh, wonder why he made this decision. It does echo uh, Islamic or Arabic maps. They are oriented uh, with the south. And Andrea Bianco's world map was also oriented that way. But I consider the idea that when the map was made, it was, it was made horizontal. And you, so they could work on all different points. And maybe he wasn't even thinking about orientation at that point, that it was really just so you could get all around the map. But we really don't have any answer as why the end product was hung that way. But the first thing, when I look at a world map, if I can't figure out where I am, the first thing I do is look for the boot of Italy. It, it's the thing that stands out. And so if you go to Venice and you see this map or you see a picture, look for the boot of Italy. <laughs> And then you realize, ah, now I know. And then you flip the map around. And the number one most important thing is what's most important to trade in Venice. And that is, this is the first map to show completely that you can go around the tip of Africa. Most world maps, Africa goes, it, it either twists around and attaches to India, or it goes into the frame. And it's, it's unknown. Now, others had suggested that there might have been a history of Arab sailors going around. There were, you know, fables about that. But we really didn't know that could happen until the Portuguese finally went all the way down the coast of West, West Africa. They had only gone as far as the Gulf of Guinea when he made this map. So the whole bottom of Africa is sort of speculation. And when you look at it, you clearly see that a ship could go around. That completely changed trade around in this part of the world, especially for Venice, because it meant that the Indian Ocean was not a sea, it was an ocean, and that you could take a trade boat all the way to the Spice Islands instead of having to have the spices uh, brought by boat to land in the Middle East and then ported to uh, the Black Sea and then put on a boat again. So it, it made it so much more efficient and cost effective. So that's the number one thing this, this um, map is known for. It's also the first time J Japan is represented on a map. And his, uh, he, a lot of things are not correct, such as the Gulf of Guinea it is way oversized. The tip of Africa, if you look, there seems to be a river running through it. And speculation has been that maybe the tip is not the tip, it's really Madagascar. But that doesn't make really good sense. 
it may be an indication that Arab sailors did go around the tip of Africa and maybe thought there was a river through that part. It's hard to say, but that's an inaccuracy. But everything else he got right, especially in the Far East in China and the Spice Islands, he got all that correct. And in, in my book, uh, in the, on the last page, I show, um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Landsat photographs, the satellites going around the Earth as we speak, taking pictures of the Earth. So the Landsat people put together a map of the world and then oriented it the way of Frau Maro's map. And the comparison picture shows how much he got right <laughs> on this. And, and that's just a, an accumulation of knowledge. And so this is really a bookmark at, at how much geography was known by Western culture in the 1450s. He relied very heavily on Marco Polo and his place names. Those turn out to be correct. Uh, there's some work by a place called uh, Mapping Historical Memory, and they took the map and they uh, uh, put Google marks all over it and compared it. They also had some students from Singapore who could readily interpret all the names that were in their language all over um, China and Southeast Asia, and they, and they recognized those names. They might have been a little bit of a variant. These all come from Marco Polo and another Venetian explorer named Niccolo da Conte. And what's interesting is with all this referencing and explaining, he never credits Marco Polo or uh, <laughs> Niccolo da Conte, even though he's using their words. And the response to that has been, well, maybe for a Venetian, this was just so normal. I mean, Marco Polo, 200 years earlier, you know, he's just like a normal guy. And so maybe he didn't feel the need to do that. So one of the interesting things, uh, well, well, the first question that <clears throat> students always used to want to know, I have to say that the thing students used to be most surprised about 25 years ago was that medieval people thought the world was round. <laughs> and that Columbus didn't, wasn't the first person to think that. And Fra Mauro thinks the world is round too. So how does he, how does he show that? Well, first of all, they had known for everybody at that point knew that the earth was a globe. And what's interesting is that it, this is a world map, but he didn't know there were two other continents on the other side. And so if you look at the inscriptions and the drawings outside the map in the four corners, the one to the bottom right is actually a globe showing it. He's trying to show different climates and you can see where he thinks there's a lot of water on the other side because mm -hmm. he just doesn't know at all, all right. what's going on. And you had asked me about those outside, uh, the yeah. references there. And what's interesting about them is that on the bottom left, you have the Garden of Eden, paradise, and that's uh, totally religious. And yet on the map proper, he does not necessarily follow all other me medieval maps. Jerusalem is there, but it's not the center of the map. It's and close, but it's, it's not, not the center. It's it's, not, it's, in, it's interesting how he kind of he like, kind of parses the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And Mount Ararat is there, where Noah's Ark was supposed to be. It's there, but it, they're not exaggerated as in many other maps. They're not mm -hmm. centered, and and yet there's this big 
chunk of drawing and explanation for the Garden of Eden and Paradise. And of course, he was a Catholic monk. So there would be, I would guess, some conflict there between his religious teachings and what he had surmised geographically. So and this is also like, you know, how to put, so a map of Mundi from 1200, like the Hereford map, the most famous, I guess, in the English-speaking world of them, is just going to show cosmology and geography are intermingled. Um, so he, he's now beginning to separate and tease apart cosmology and geography in a way that we recognize. But in some ways, uh, his cosmology, as you say, is very, I, I alluded to this earlier, it's very, it's very from Aquinas. The Garden of Eden is both real, but also mystical and spiritual. And so he takes the Garden of Eden and sort of just moves it off the map into the region of the cosmos. It's also surveyed sort of Dante, you know, uh, Dante goes mm -hmm. to the Garden of Eden is at the top of the mountain of Purgatory. Where is it? It's on the exact opposite side of the world from Florence. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's, is it, is it, uh, is it real? Is it on earth? Is it in heaven? And the answer is yes. It is. <laughs> it's both. And it's, 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 an it's an amphibious place. Kind and of. It occurs to me, uh, going back to your, uh, one of your previous questions, that maybe this is the reason it was hung in a closed cabinet in the monastery, mm. because at a certain level, it was blasphemous. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, mm -hmm. that's an idea. That's I mean, idea. on the top left, he's talking about the different parts of the universe, mm -hmm. um, sky, earth, water and all the planets and that's what those rings are and um the top right are the elements and the bottom right is the climates and he makes the case that climate is all about where people can live mm -hmm. and the idea at the time was that people couldn't live way south because it would be too hot or something like mm -hmm. that and sure. he pretty much reiterates those things which mm -hmm. is completely different than what he says on the on the geography part of the map. And to me, this speaks to the conflict that he had being a religious man, but also a scientist at certain levels. Um, the idea- How is he, uh, I wanna ask you about that. How does he push back against the Ptolemaic system? Because you, 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 you alluded to that earlier and, and, and it's, it's here, isn't it? Where he, it, he's sort of giving his, he's giving his indications of dissatisfaction with how it works out. Right. He didn't like uh, Ptolemy's projection at all. He just, he didn't. And he felt that he, and he writes this on the map in inscriptions on the geography part of the map. Mm -hmm. And he talks about, he got this wrong and he got that wrong and he got this, this isn't how it is. This shape is different. And mm -hmm. that's why his map is more accurate is because he didn't follow Ptolemy. But so this, this is in the mathematical way in which he decided to distribute uh, space. <laughs> way he decided to translate actual landforms onto a smaller yes. paper version, which is one of the most difficult, as I understand it, things to do. Yeah, I describe it like this. You know, if you know the earth is a globe, think of an orange. Now, try to take the skin off that orange and make it flat. Right. Well, you know, you have to cut strips that are in certain, you know, triangles at the top and bottom, and then you can do it and you have a map with all these zigzagging. And so this has been the, the problem that has plagued world geographers forever. And at this point, we've got a pretty good system, but 
just two years ago, there was a new one published in the New York Times, and what it said was you print out these two pictures, they're round circles, and you put them top to bottom like a plate, and then you have the perfect projection. <laughs> you have to hang it from the ceiling, but there yeah. it is, you know? And, yeah. and when you think about it, people were drawing world maps before they really had ever seen the world. It, right. it, it took, you know, it took the pictures from space to show really what the earth looks like. Um, so it hung in a cabinet for 150 years. So how could it possibly have led to any consequences whatsoever? Well, it, there was a lot of word of mouth about it. Mm -hmm. And it also was right at the edge of the age of discovery or the age of exploration, whatever you want to talk about it or call it. But uh, the Portuguese certainly knew about this map. Well, they and, had a copy. Mm -hmm, and it, it, we're speculating here, but it certainly must have been important for thinking about traveling down the west coast of Africa, because at that point, they would really be looking for a way to go around the tip. There's speculation that Christopher Columbus knew about this map. Well, he, it's a, he, ran a, he, he ran a map store in Lisbon. This is copied and, and into Portugal. I mean, yeah, he knew about the map. And right. he's also Genoese, and they have a certain, uh, as I was saying before we began, there's a certain animosity towards anything from Venice and also a, a predilection to, like, copy uh, anything sure. from Venice. So, you know, sure. yeah, he knew about the map. Sure. And sure. Amerigo Vespucci in Florence he knew about the map. Sure, sure. So it's so hard for us in our age of cell phones and computers and telephones and, and mail to, to really understand that you could have communication like this. It yeah. was just slower and probably for a select few, those who are interested in this. And because navigating by boat was the main tra transportation it would also, there's that whole network of sailors and navigators, explorers. Mm -hmm. And of course, all the exploration was about commerce. Um, anyone who's an economist knows that Venice invented capitalism and that's what it was all about. And so there's a real push to understand the world so you could pick up goods and bring them home and, and sell them. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't sort of this, oh, let's just go explore things. It really mm -hmm. wasn't that at all. Well, I believe in walking and chewing gum, and, and certainly, and sometimes even walking, chewing gum, and humming is possible. And some of them did all three. Some of them enjoyed doing uh, three things at once. But yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, yeah, they want they want to set up factories. They want to set up uh, they want to set up places to yeah. trade. That's that's the that's the name of the game. Um, so it influences people through um, the copies in Florence and in Lisbon, and I imagine. Um, Mercator is not too long after this. Uh, other people are not long after this. The first widely published map of the world, would, which now I forget completely blank on his name, but the man who called the new hemisphere America uh, after Vespucci, uh, Waldseemuller. Um, but uh, that's, that's who it, Martin, Martin Waldseemuller. Um, but they, uh, there must have been a certain, um, as there is in art and science, a desire to emulate and then over and then make a greater achievement than, than Fram Morrow had made. Yeah. Somebody called world maps aggregators of information. Yeah. And so each one is, yes. is aggregated to its date, time, and culture. 
-hmm. And so they become historical documents for mm -hmm. us now. And they will continue to be. I mean, world maps now, we don't think of it this way, but if you walk into a store and see a globe, it's a political map because it has countries on it. And mm -hmm. the earth does not have countries on it. You know, that's not, they're not written. We have borders, but still, we are used to political maps. And we now have maps, things are mapped about everything, public health, whatever, they've become important. Um, and I think they were just as important back then. And they were chic to have a map like this was very chic. And there were also the other maps, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know about, the Portalon charts, which really were navigational maps. And those were taken on, on board boats. So there was a lot of map making um, in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance because people were traveling and discovering things. And, and Portland maps, I, I've often thought is the, the, the 15th, 16th century equivalent of the, uh, the old AAA triptych. Yes. Um, you know, where it, which you used to, people, uh, and we never did, used to mail away for it and they would send you how to get to Portland, Maine, which is not hard, but you could get a triptych, which would give you your route to Portland, Maine. And now, of course, on, from Waze or Google, or that's all I get are triptychs. That's right. You know, the ability to step back and comprehend where I am, where I'm going, what's near me is it's funny it's increasingly because we have a different way of relating because we all use portal and charts now we all use triptychs it's increasingly hard to do what Framaro did with his map and to s step back and say what's going on here how are things related to each other you know isn't it beautiful <laughs> um, I, I, we, I, we can't do that yeah i totally agree and i admit that when i'm going somewhere i print out a map and have it with me because sometimes the GPS doesn't work right. Or sometimes your phone runs out of pa power. Then what do you do? We and sound so old I mean, right now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a, a very dog-eared Delorme Atlas of Virginia behind me. And if I go out driving this afternoon with my dog, it will probably, she'll probably be sitting on it. Uh, but at some point I'll pull over and say, now what's near here? Cause I can't find interesting country roads and places in the back or places to fish just using Google Maps yep. as much and, or ways as much as I enjoy having the Terminator give me turn by turn instructions, which I, I do a lot because sure. I'm a, a five year old boy. If you if you don't if you don't have a destination that you can plug in, it doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my experience, they're often wrong or, or the messages come sort of late. But I think for me, and it probably is certainly is my age, I want to have that cognitive moment of seeing the whole picture of where I'm going. And once I, I'm very good with directions and I have a really good sense of direction and space. And I want that first. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've been I've been looking around in, in Brooklyn lately, and I'm confused still about where north, south, east, and west is. And I want that. I, I want to know where that is. And I like Philadelphia because it's delineated by two rivers, and I know exactly where I am. And it's a and grid. It's a, and it's a grid with a, a grid. with the exception of which is the exception of Passyunk yeah. and a few and yeah. a few other anar anarchic uh, streets. Yeah. Um, well, this has been wonderful. Uh, my guest today is Meredith Small, and her book is Here Begins the Dark Sea, 
Venice, a medieval monk, and the creation of the most accurate map of the world. Uh, Meredith, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It was a great conversation. Thank you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 